Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. The Houseman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. Hey guys, the journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand cast, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. Today on The Journey, we are going to the West Coast, and it's the place they call the Silver State, which is Las Vegas, Nevada, and we have got Cameron Ford with us today. Cameron owns his own canine company, which is Ford Canine. Cameron runs his own podcast, and I would highly recommend you guys go over and listen to it. He has all kinds of knowledgeable i mean just a wealth of knowledge of the the audience that he brings in and the the podcast is called canine talking sense and that is s-c-e-n-t scent like we smell the dog smell not common sense and i'm telling you guys the the guests that he brings on i mean they're they're a wealth of knowledge Um, i try to listen to it regularly and I think you guys will take so much from it. So, Cameron, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, and thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, we are. I mean, we're honored to have you on. Um, like I said, I I've sat through numerous classes that you've put on back when um, I don't know if it was bridge training or marker training. I don't remember what the class was called, mm-hmm. but you were. Um, mm-hmm. That was some of the first classes. Uh, that's been that's been a while back. I'd sit in some of your classes and. 
you know, I think the stuff that you're doing, especially with, especially with the cognitive um, cognition studies and stuff, and especially the ones that you've done with uh, Dr. Hare from Duke, I, I mean, I, it just interests me. It intrigues me. And, man, I, I mean, I can't wait to pick your brain about it. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun, like you said, you know, kind of going through a journey of uh, teaching people about condition reinforcers. You know, the business I do is heavily based in detection. And, uh, you know, detection has evolved a lot over the years. And uh, one of the pieces that I brought in to talk about more frequently than it had been in the past was the use of condition reinforcers, a marker or a bridge, depends on what anybody wants to call it. The true term is a condition reinforcer. And how is that best detection dogs? That was also a overlay into the journey of detection, which got me into the college aspect, how dogs learn and the strategies they have for learning. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I got into it with thanks to Dr. Hare from Duke University. And it's really made a big difference in, you know, information that we have to be better at training dogs. Yeah. So before we get into that, Duke is only two hours from here. Um, so I'm, I mean, I'm right in the Southwest part of Virginia and you can be in North Carolina in an hour. I can be in West Virginia in less than an hour. I can be in Tennessee in an hour and a half. I can be in Kentucky. Like I'm right in that little hub, but yeah, Duke, Duke is only about two hours away. Of course they're in our conference and we play, play ball, but Cameron, can you tell, <laughs> can you tell the listeners a little bit about you? I don't want to go through all your accolades cause there's a long list of them, but just tell them, <laughs> tell them who you are, what you've done, your kind of your history and, just give them an overlay of who Cameron Ford is. Yeah, so I, you know, got into dogs as a kid. My neighbor was a gentleman who trained police dogs, and then that had a profound effect on me. And then later in life, I ended up being in the military and worked as a, uh, a military working dog handler in the Air Force, stationed in Germany, which opened up a lot of opportunities for me to do different things. Um, got to learn, you know, different systems over there. Got to work with. Uh, German police, as well as the, uh, uh, I've got to go to this set dog school over in Holland, uh, one of the forensic schools there. And then those instances progressed me forward. And then as I progressed through the years, got into um, uh, contracting. I was a police officer for a little while and did the police thing and then got into government contracting. And more recently, I would say in the past eight years, my last uh job that I had before I got into the private sector was working as a instructor for the Navy SEAL program. I was hired by a company called Cobra Canine. Cobra Canine uh, had a contract and they hired me to be a trainer on the West Coast. I did that for a little over four years and that's kind of where the really the science world got in for me and um, you know I had to be a better trainer. I couldn't just do things that I've always done when I was, uh, you know, do the typical police thing. And when you go into a special operations program, you know, they expect results. And I really had to kind of up my game uh, when it came to training. And the best thing is data and science helps out <laughs> tremendously in learning those things. Yes. I, you know, I have, you know, experience is really helpful. And I had some good experiences throughout my life. But um, to kind of prove that something worked, I had to have uh, the data behind it. And that's, you know, with, in that time with that program, I got into more of the science aspect. And um, in the past, uh, going into my fourth year now uh, in the private sector and 
Um, it's been a lot of fun. I focused highly, like I said, on detection and that time with the Navy SEAL program is where I got to meet Dr. Brian Hare on the cognitive side of things. Mm. And that journey led me to Dr. Nathan Hall, the Canine Olfaction Laboratory at Texas Tech, yep. Dr. Paula Tiedemann, Sam University. She does the chemistry and the forensic science aspect of it. And Dr. Lauren uh, DeGrief and Dr. Lucia Lazarus, even the list goes on and on yeah, you have a when it comes to science. There's, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of really great uh, uh, individuals out there who are re- working hard with research to help us be better, not only at learning our dogs, but what are our dogs smelling? What are our dogs detecting and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, so I, I got a question on the, when you was with the Navy SEALs. So was the scientific part something that you thought, Hey, this is what's going to make me better. Or was it because they needed the data to function in that that high capacity of what they're asking their dogs to do well it was kind of somewhat selfish in the sense that i wanted to be better but i was held to the standards that my employer and that the navy had when it came to performance you know Mm -hmm. and it, it it stemmed from watching a tv show i was uh one of the days off watching on uh, that geo wild, it was a show called, uh, the, is your dog a genius? And that's where I saw Brian, Brian Hare yeah. on there sharing these different, uh, tests that he was doing. And I was looking at these tests going, wow, this actually has a really big overlay into what we do. And it was showing me there were some various gaps that existed in what, what we were doing. And maybe there was some information that this guy had that could help, me be a better trainer so I could produce more reliable training or more reliable results uh, despite some of the crazy environments that these dogs had to work in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so was, was Dr. Hare, was he already attached to the seals or was, does it something that you made contact with him and they all hooked up that way? Yeah. So I hopped on the good old interweb and looked around and see if I could, after seeing him on the show, could I find this guy's contact info, just searching the web. And sure enough, I did. I I shot him an email saying, Hey, this is what I do. This is who I work for. Would you be interested in helping us out? And luckily enough, you know, and to my surprise within like 24 to 48 hours, he emailed me back and said, I would love to help. We have done research before with the Marine Corps um, things like that. So long story short was, uh, I got him hundreds of thousands of dollars through the office of Naval research to help fund, um, this testing that we got into to help really it, it boiled down to selecting better. Mm. And when we selected better, we had less dogs wash out. And then a byproduct of selecting better was we also had a 30% reduction in training time just because we weren't spinning our wheels as frequently when before we didn't know why dogs were doing something. Well, now thanks to some of that testing, we knew better why this occurred. And because of this type of dog, we would make adjustments to our training, which made us more efficient. Oh, this is going to be so good. Yeah. So selection. And I talk about that and I've talked about it before, you know, it, it helps the process. Like you said, it shortcuts the, the training and the dogs don't, you know, it's, it's, it keeps the dogs washing out. So yeah, I can't wait to pick your brain on that. So tell us a little bit about the cognitive testing and what, what, what you guys, um, like I said, I know you two work together, 
quite extensively on it. Tell us, tell us, tell the listeners about that. And then maybe we'll get into the selection and then the testing part, what we can do with our pups and our dogs to help the learning process. Yeah. So what, you know, it started off, like I said, you know, my goal was to look at some of the training aspects. What was it that was happening in training? And Brian brought it back all the way to, well, this is what happens. You have to select and and do this selection testing. You're able to better understand your dog's mind and how they solve problems, you know, in problems being what we present to them in training, these different things. So um, we he shared some of these tests that they had done with the Marine Corps, but nothing had ever been done with uh, what we call multi-purpose canines or dual, similar to what a dual purpose canine is, mm-hmm. um, which was dogs that did bite work as well as detection. So um, they had done detection only, but not the bite work. So uh, I, once everything was approved, I flew over to Duke university, spent about a week over there learning these different tests. Now, what was important was we still did our traditional ways of selecting dogs. We still did our typical tests. Now the adjustments we made to those tests were the individuals who were testing were no longer allowed to stand near each other. What we did was you know, I wrote my notes, they wrote their, their notes and things like that. And then once we were done, we would convene and then we would look at uh, what we had written down per dog. And of course, there's a lot of things that we saw the same way, uh, but there were some things that we saw different. And then we had to have discussions about how did you see that? What was it that you saw? Because what happens was, and this was Brian's point, when we are together standing in a group, we will tend to be influenced by somebody in the group, you know, whoever that is. Mm-hmm. And instead of, you know, say speaking up and going, well, I see this, we just kind of go along with what the group says. So there's various psychological studies that show that all the time. So by being separate, there was at times things that might come up that someone saw that nobody else did or that a few of us saw and we had a discussion. So once we got through that traditional selection, we said, hey, we like these dogs. Once we did that, then we added the cognitive battery of tests. And what these did, in short, was show us, is this dog stronger in memory or is this dog stronger in inference? And inference is basically the dog's ability to look at the environment and figure out different things to use to problem solve to get whatever it is that they would want or reinforcing or pleasurable, et cetera. So... And, you know, dogs will tend to be stronger in one area or the other. And depending on the type of work that you do, that strength in a certain area is very helpful or it just gives you information that you know you have to adjust so that way your training is optimal despite that dog strategy. Mm -hmm. So can you break down a couple of those tests for us? What 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 you're looking at or how you test and what you're looking for for that test. Yes. So we start off with the battery of inference-based tests. And we it's something very simple as we show the dog something they want. Could be their food item, their toy item, whatever it is that's really highly reinforcing for them. But on the ground in front of me, between me and the dog, is let's just say two buckets the size of a child's sand pail. Mm-hmm. And I walk closer to the dog, show the dog their item that they really want. 
I walk backwards and then I go to my right side. And based on the score sheet, the score sheet will tell you what side you put it under. So you either put it under the right or you put it under the left, depending on what the sheet says. Mm-hmm. And that sheet is randomized. You don't know uh, until obviously you're testing which side you're starting with. So anyway, you walk forward and you show it, you walk back. You always have the same rhythm, your pattern. Your pattern is always walk backwards, go to the right, then go to the left. Um, let's just say in this example, I'm going to load the right. So I show the dog the item, walk backwards, go to the right. I let the dog see me place the item under the right bucket. Mm-hmm. And then I walk over and just simply stand behind the left. And then I go back to center and I'll point to the left. So I'm going to point to the where, where it's not at. Mm-hmm. Does the dog follow my gestural communication and go to where I pointed, or will it go to where it knows it's reinforcing or reward item is at? So ideally in detection, I look for a dog who's not as collaborative with me in that sense where it knows where the answer is at, but it would, it would, I want it to go to that answer. I don't want to go to where I point because later on throughout training, I'm a dumb handler. I don't know where the odor is at. So I want the dog that goes, yeah, dummy, I know you want me to go there, but the odor's over here. So I, I look for that dog who is, you know, let's say disobedient to my gesture, but in a different program with say assistance dogs or dogs that are trained heavily in directional information based on handler information. So let's say field work, mm-hmm. I would want the dog to go to where I make a gesture. So this is, again, it's helpful information. What you do with that information is depending on what the dog's job is. Mm -hmm. So again, in my case with detection, I wanted the dog who disobeyed or didn't go to where I pointed and just simply went to where it knows the answer is at. And you do that test six times. And during those six times, you look to see um, did the dog initially go to where you pointed and then adjusted and went to the reinforcing item? Because you, all you do is, you know, once you say the, you go look and you point and you turn your head and you're facing the item that's like I said, the not loaded side, in this case, the left side, you hold that gaze and that point until the dog makes a choice. Once the dog, let's say, runs over the bucket that has the food or toy underneath it, then you can move again. So you're, like I said, I'll recap it. I walk forward. I say, look, show the dog that item. I walk backwards, go to the right. If this is the side I loaded, I would load that side. But the dog see me load that side. I then go to the left side to simply stand there for a second, come back to middle, and then point with my hand. And then with my face, look at the left bucket, say, okay. And when the dog is released to go forward, the dog is 10 feet away. The dog runs forward. And then in my case, I hope it picks the side that has the the reward item underneath it, or, or if they ran over the side where I pointed, as soon as they go to that bucket, the test stops. And like I said, you do that six times and you score that accordingly based on you're just you're writing down the result of what side the dog chose. Now the right and left is always going to be the administrator, the test administrator, you, the handler, basically. It's going to be your right or left, not the dog's right or left. Right. So that's just one of the tests that we do that, tells us is this dog heavily in gestural communication or is it you know willing to follow what its instincts are and here's a key sentence i share to everybody when it comes to cognition and that is there is no other species on the planet that has the ability to read human communication and intention better than dogs 
So there, you know, no matter what primate that might be closely related to us or a super smart dolphin or another animal, dogs possess this unique ability to understand us and communicate with us just at the same level as a young toddler. You know, and that is really, really special and unique that dogs have this capability, which is different than other species out there. Can other primates communicate with us? Yes. But to at the level that dogs can consistently understand and communicate us, they're the best out there when it comes to the various species that exist. Yeah, I mean, they are super at reading body language. Mm-hmm. So just um, to to ask a few questions about that. So I can see I can see three different things happen, and I can see a dog that goes to your hand every time, which is not a bad thing mm-hmm. if you're doing a certain mm-hmm. context. I can see mm-hmm. a dog that goes to the to your left hand one or two times, and as those six cycles work out, it decides mm-hmm. this is not this is not profitable for me, so I go to the right and I reward myself. Yep. Or you have a dog that is, I would say, and I'm going to ask you this. The dog that goes to the the food source, toy source, whatever, all six times. Um, mm-hmm. So that would put me for me. That dog is going to for me using it in in our world to to trail odor and find odor, which is the same thing you're doing. That dog doesn't really care what I think. He's going to do what his instincts tell him to do. Yeah, and like I said, depending on. Uh, the job that you want the dog to do that is really helpful. Or let's just say, if like I said, if I was doing directionals or assistance-based dogs, mm-hmm. I want the dog who is going to collaborate with me, despite let's just say that rewarding item being somewhat a distraction to them. They're willing to go. Well, you say go here, I'm going to go here, and that's super, that's very valuable for yep. a trainer of a certain type of job or discipline for a dog. Right. Good. So <clears throat> when when you and Dr. Hare done the the studies, what what did y'all come up with? What what did y'all learn about cognition and the, what what benefits it in a, in the dog or what benefits it to, for us to learn? And I know you just give us one example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What what did you guys bring from that? And what has helped you raise, train, teach w- w- everything that you do in the in the the law enforcement side of it, what has that brought to you? Yeah. So like I was saying, the, we broke it into two categories. It can go much more in depth than that. And you can go mm-hmm. to Dr. Hare's website. He's got a, his website. I think it's uh, brianhare.net and that's a H A R E.net. Um, it could be .com, but uh, in fact, as I sit here, I'll look it up as I talk. Um, but or you can go to dognition.com. Dognition.com is a website where there's lots of various tests that people can purchase a set of tests that they do, um, which is a little more in depth than what I do. Mine's very highly focused to the working aspect. So in any case, these tests tell us on the working side, is that dog stronger in memory or inference? And inference it's, I have looked it up, Brian Hare, so B-R-I-A-N-H-A-R-E dot net. Yeah. So his website has his books, has Dognition on there, so it's a one-stop shop location. Yeah. So the, the tests that I do um, that tell me stronger memory, so like I said, I gave you an example of one of the inference tests, and there's three 
inference test totals. So there's another one, there's one after that. And then once I see the scores in the inference test, then we go to memory testing. And memory testing has time delays to these. So the dog would see you put something there, you block that uh, the view of that item for 20 seconds or 40 seconds, and then you look to see when you remove that item, does the dog remember which under which bucket was it under? And there's, this, now there's three buckets. There's a right, middle, and left. Mm -hmm. And the dogs are, you know, they have 15 seconds to make the decision. Uh, as soon as they go to a bucket, right, wrong, or different, the test, you know, ends. So if it's the wrong bucket, the dog is pulled back to that uh, person holding the dog. If the dog, if a test, of course, the dog goes to the right location, you allow the dog to get the reinforcing item or the reward. So we look at that information. Is this dog stronger in memory or stronger in inference? If I know it's stronger in memory, I have a dog that will default to memory first to solve a new problem or to gain their reinforcer. So many people have seen this in relation to location. So uh, where something was placed previously in training, you could come back at a different day or week and the dog will run right back to that location uh, because it remembered where the last time it received a reinforcer. Some dogs are really good at this. Other dogs, they you can have them go retrieve an item or go find an item, you know, play with them, do whatever, and then do it again. And it's like, they were never there. You know, I, I joke around, I call those the 51st dates dogs. They, <laughs> you know, every time they go out, it's brand new yeah. again, you know, even though they just ran it, it's brand new to them. So to know this information, to know a percentage score on how this dog performs in memory exercises versus inference exercises, allows me to write up a training protocol that is much more efficient so that way I can better prepare training. So I don't want to spin my wheels too much. If I know this dog is strong in memory, I need to change the context or that environment more frequently so that way the dog is going to use another skill over its memory. Now, if I have a really good memory dog and that's valuable to me. So again, the retriever world, you know, having dogs remember the locations of falls, those, that is a very helpful skill. It's a, it's a trait I really like to have, but it also can bite me in the butt depending on how I'm setting up training. So again, this information and the way we score it is it's a percentage based score at the end of the inference and at the end of the memory. And it tells me, is this dog percentage wise high in memory, high in inference and how high it is it. And then again, as a trainer or handler, I am going to set up training that maximizes my results or my plan. So this dog performs at its best and it accomplishes the objectives I have as a trainer to have this dog be successful again in whatever skill it is. Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting here just processing all this information. So, can, <laughs> so can, can you give? And I know this is we're talking about the detection world, but this would relate back to us and odor with what we do. Can you give me a short, just one thing that you would do difference with a memory dog in training? That and I know that you said you would change the environment because, and we always you hear people say short-term memory, you know, you take a dog in a room he, and you hide it. Let's just use example. You hit it in a light socket uh, outlet. Mm -hmm. The dog goes to the outlet. He rewards you. Take him in the next room. He goes right to the outlet. And that's you what you're, it. that's what you're talking about. 
Um, yeah. And, and what I would do is uh, for a dog who's strong in that in the early stages of training, when we're just starting the association to a target odor, what I would do typically is after a day or two of this target odor being, let's say a box, I then change it to a pipe. I change the outer containment. So that way the dog starts realizing the one constant that they're looking for is that yeah, particular odor. trained odor. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the more I change that context, they start to realize, oh, this is what is the constant, not the container. So I give another example. Um, there's a lot of people that may have heard of Temple Grandin. She uh, wrote a book and it kind of shows the overlay between dog training and autism. And in one of the examples that she gives it's a, for example, if I showed a autistic child a photo of a car and the car was blue in two doors, uh, you said to the child, hey, this is a car. Well, then when I show them a different picture of a four-door silver vehicle, they would say that's not a car. And the reason is they are very specific about what they associate and the context that they learn. So... It takes time to generalize. So I have to show them numerous pictures and say, this is also a car. This is also a car. This is, you know, they're different looks and different types of vehicles and so forth. So eventually they will generalize much better that this is a car, no matter what color it is, no matter how many doors it is. Is it a, you know, a flatbed truck that's still considered a vehicle? You know, is it an SUV, a van? These are all automobiles. And, but it takes time to share that context because by default, they're going to be very specific. Well, dogs learn very much the same way. They learn through context, context cues. So in the context cue, a dog with strong memory, you say, this is what you're looking for. They may also take in a bunch of other aspects in how you presented it and said, this is the way that I, that I understood this. Mm-hmm. So it could mean this odor in a box that this odor that's packaged a certain way, that's been stored a certain way. Again, you don't know these other aspects of odor that are part of that odor profile. And what was it that the dog associated as the primary aspect? Well, then as you diversify this, it'll start to realize that the other things are background noise, but there is one constant thing that's present. In this case, let's just say I'm training a dog on a narcotic and it's the narcotic chemical despite the cutting agents despite the box it's in despite the plastic bag that the officer might have it in if it was a police officer that would do the training all of these things i have to get the dog to go okay those are irrelevant contexts this specific part the narcotic is the thing we're looking for so by constantly changing those things and the only thing that they realize is the constant is that target and that's the one the part that gets in the reinforcement the better they are. But the problem is we do as trainers is we present many of those aspects in the same context. It very rarely do we separate them out. So they learn that there's the one. Um, now in the hunting community, there's very similar things. Um, and I would say the, the hunting community is pretty good about, ch- you know, changing the area. So where you're doing your, your searches or how you're presenting the target to the dog whether it be the feathers that are being drugged behind, uh, whether it be in a cage, uh, all these things. And of course, what's even better in the hunting world is the other dogs who are much more seasoned do a much better job at Mm -hmm. teaching these dogs what to look for better than we do as humans. But in, in the world I'm in, it's all humans 
very rarely is another dog used to help train the dog. This is what you're looking for. This is what you're hunting for. Uh, so therefore we have lots of errors and lots of things that we bring into the equation. So again, circling back to what makes this dog, um, if it's strong in memory, I have to be very careful that it's so strong in memory that it located or focused in on this particular specific item, whatever it is. And I have to do my best to diversify that so way it understands if it's not presented in that exact same way, it's still relevant. I still want you to tell me it's there, even if it's not presented to you the exact same way it's been in training because you have such a strong memory. Yeah, and I know that uh, Chris and I have talked on this podcast several times about how much our dogs in the hunting world learn from each other. Like another dog mm-hmm. is the best teacher. And I'm so glad that you reiterated that without even us ever discussing that because, you know, know, and we do change, like, you know, the difference in like a memory, what you're talking about, the memory, like we're, we're usually never in the same place twice. And and especially out in the woods, Um, you know, we may be driving down the road with our dogs on top or um, we may be walking through the woods or, but our our environment is continuously changing. So what mm-hmm. I'm picking from you, Cameron, tell me if I'm right or wrong, just so I'm, or listeners are understanding this and I'm making sure that, that we understand. The inference dog is one that's probably going to be a little stronger for us. Um, mm-hmm. Or would it be the memory? Yeah, that- so again, depending on what you're doing in the hunting community or, or search community for depending on the job, again, um, inference could be very helpful, obviously, uh, because like you said, different environments, different things, the things are changing. I would say in the retriever world, um, doing the field work, memory is probably going to be better because, you know, once they see the falls and then you give the line, yeah. you want the mm-hmm. dog to kind of, yeah, stay yep. true to that. Now in a more natural hunting aspect, I would probably prefer the dog with stronger inference because again, like you pointed out, the environment changes frequently mm-hmm. and they can't use a previous context cue such as by a tree or in a bush as something that will be relevant to them because it could be totally different this time. So, and those that have done hunting long enough have probably seen it where they've had that dog they trained that was just constantly going on, say, from bush to bush because the last time they found something, it was in a bush and they completely ignored the rocks or trees mm-hmm. or things that are other that are out there. Um, so, in those cases, they've experienced these things and, they, and that's what I share about cognition is I'm going to share with you a lot of things that you might already know about your dog, but you will walk away going, oh, that's why the dog mm-hmm. does this. Yeah. So those those tests there, again, it's more about understanding the dog in front of me and being more efficient in how I communicate and how I train with that dog. Makes perfect sense. So you, you said there was two more tests that you do. Um, what what – are they short enough where you can tell us what they are? Yeah, I can try to describe as best I can. So right. the the next test is very similar to that first test, except I'm no, I'm no longer pointing. I'm just placing an item on top of the relevant bucket. Now, the difference is on this test is the dog no longer sees. I have, I have like a little um, screen, I want to call it, but just, it's just a piece of cardboard that's yep. mm-hmm. folded in a way the dog cannot see what's behind it. So 
I show the dog's reward item and then put it behind the the technical terms called an occluder, but it's just think of it as it's a blocking screen or a blo- I'm, I'm putting it behind a barrier. That's the best yep. way. I'm putting it behind a barrier the dog can't see through. So I pull it behind the barrier. I then go to my right side, go to the left side, and I load the appropriate side, but the dog does not know because I have to do both sides the exact same way. So the dog doesn't know what side the reward item is under. Now I walk forward again with a non-relevant object. So something like a little wooden block or a roll of deck tape or whatever. Mm -hmm. And now I, I still walk my same pattern. I still walk backwards and go to the right and go to the left. And whatever side that's the loaded side is where the dog is now allowed to see me place this non-relevant item on top of the bucket. And then I go back to center and I say, okay, does that dog follow that, you know, social cue, that item that tells them that this might be relevant to where there's something that they want. And so we score again, does the dog follow that social cue, that item on top of the bucket as a way to solve the problem of this is where your thing is. This is the thing that you want. And that's, that's that we call it marker Q test. So the marker Q test shows that aspect. The next test is now we still use that uh, barrier item. Um, but now there's only going to be one bucket with the reward item underneath it. However, there's now two fabric circles that are about 12 inches in diameter. Uh, obviously big, it's big enough to cover the buckets, what it is. Mm-hmm. So we do, I, I joke around, I call it the doggy magic show. So when you place <laughs> that barrier in front of the side, you know, in front of your right side, left side, you do, you raise the fabric up and you flip it like you're doing like a little magic show. But anyway, there's going to be whatever side has the bucket. So I got to go back a second. How we start this test is I walk forward with that barrier in my hand and the, their bucket. I let them see me drop their reward item into the bucket. That bucket goes behind the barrier. I then walk backwards and go to my right. I either act like, or I cover the bucket on that side. And then I go to the left side and do the same thing again. And what the difference is, is one side is a flat piece of fabric. The other side is a fabric with a big bump over it. Mm -hmm. But what's happened is in test one, the dog got to see you place the reward item. And all you did was point to the opposite side. Test two, they lose sight of you putting out a reward item and there's a social cue, an object, but the buckets are still there. Test three, now the buckets are no longer visible. There is no bucket anymore as far as the dog's point of view. There's just a fabric with a big lump and there's a fabric that's flat to the ground. And you're looking to see, will they make the inference that this thing over this side is different than the other side. Again, it's another form of a social cue, but can they understand that that's different than the other side? Mm-hmm. And th- there's some dogs that will go to the flat side the first two or three times and all of a sudden go, that didn't work. And then they go to the other side where that bump is and they stay going to that side and they do really well. Um, they made it basically, they made an inference partway through that test. And that's really relevant. You know, it's good information that they say that, Hey, this dog will, figure it out partway through. It may take a couple of times, but it'll learn. Other dogs just automatically follow that. Hey, that's different. I'm going to go there. Other dogs just go to the flat side every time. So those three tests make up the inference-based tests that we do. And they're pretty simple. You would think that those three things would make all this difference in the world, but surprisingly enough, it does, it tells you a lot about how well, plus you're doing it six reps in a row 
And the dogs, some dogs fatigue, some dogs while they wait for you to set as you're the administrators, you know, doing the process. Some dogs are barking the entire time. They're losing focus, which also tells you stuff like some dogs are going to, are going to lack a little mental flexibility because they get themselves too mm-hmm. overly aroused as they waited. Yep. So again, very good information for you to have as a trainer that it doesn't take much for this dog to get overly excited, which then inhibits their ability to problem solve because all they want to do is circle and bark or do whatever it is uh, as that time went on as you progress through the tests. So, so again, very useful information. Yeah, I, and I can see, and you know, I heard you say on a podcast, I don't remember which one it was you was talking about, and I want to talk about persistence. How sometimes the more persistent dogs not always what we want um, because it causes problems down the road. But what age do you start doing this, or what is a good age to um, to to be able to do this that we're not too young, we're not too old? What, what is the age range here? Yes. Yeah, so for these particular tests, we want a dog that's approximately seven months or older just so they have the mental maturity and enough focus to get through these testing uh, cycles. Now, there is puppy cognition, and puppy cognition is basically from dogs that are six weeks to, on average, 12 to 14 weeks, depends on the size of the dog because the, the, and the breed of the dog uh, because the testing space is much shorter. So if a dog is a pretty large dog by 16 weeks old, they're generally might be too big to do the test. Uh, so your, your sweet spot is that six weeks to let's say 12 weeks old, uh, generally no matter what breed it is, they're, they're the right size to do the, the test based on the testing size parameters. Um, so, but the test that we are specifically talking about, you're going to be seven months to all the way until they're old. It doesn't matter. It, you can do these tests randomly throughout the dog's life, and you're going to always see that they're going to stay about the same. They, their scores may change a little bit here and there, but overall, the big picture scope, the dogs will stay stronger in one or the other. And is that like across the board? Is that so? If if you tested a dog today, and you test mm-hmm. him five years from now, you should be mm-hmm. you should get relevant relevantly the the same type of score yes i'll 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 give you a scientific answer that scientists always say (laughs) that should be the case there are always anomalies that show us but as dr hare would say with the hundreds of thousands of dogs that have been tested and all across the different breeds to include his own dog that gets tested almost weekly by grad students the test comes out about the same each time with relative changes within the test. It's, it, it might got the first rep wrong, the second rep wrong uh, on the first time you did it. The next time you do it, they get the first two right, but the next one, you know, mm-hmm. but your score, your actual score overall big picture will still lean to what the dog was when you first tested it. So let's just say it scored higher in memory, whatever that score was uh, versus inference. When you do that again later on, months, years later, you will still see that pattern show itself with the exception of those few that, uh, that are our anomalies. Um, but, and, and believe me, a lot of these tests that, we've, that we do, people have all kinds of questions about them. And I can tell you, we have tested it in numerous different ways, numerous different styles. Instead of pointing with our hand, we've pointed with our feet. We faced our bodies. We've done all kinds of things. These tests are, have come down to be where the most of the data lands. This is where, 
it's super helpful. There's going to be scores if you change something over here and over there, but it, it wasn't as predictable and reliable as the current method of testing that we follow now. And despite some little things doing this way, or despite a dog's previous training history, because there are things that dogs have learned mm -hmm. uh, through their training that, that prior to our testing that show itself. You know, like I said, the pointing. If, if you've done a lot of gestural communication to your dog, your dog will follow probably where you point. And it doesn't mean that it's that's important information. That's relevant to whatever it is that you do. If you are highly collaborative in the work that you do with your dog, that's great. That's perfect. That's exactly what you expected. Um, if you wanted to do something different where you wanted more independence with a dog, well, then this is telling. This tells you that your dog does follow your social cues really well. And you may need to adjust training depending on that skill you want that dog to be more independent. You may have to back off in other areas. I see it all the time where uh, people can compete in various sports for dogs and then they want to come to me and do detection. And when we do these tests, these tests tell mm -hmm. me very quickly no, that their the dog is thing. very, yep. yeah, the dog is very collaborative with their handler. Mm -hmm. And we may have to do some things in training that help get the dog to be more independent. But it won't always mean, it's, let's say under stress, the dog will default to where they're most comfortable or their strongest reinforcement history. Uh, and that's going to be probably collaborative with you. And you just have to understand that. And again, it's relevant. It helps you again form, you know, a training plan is one of the things I spent the past two weeks with my friend Simon Prince teaching people was you have to go into your training with a plan and what your protocol is. Don't try to figure it out while you're training. Have your plan set out ahead of time so that way you can accomplish those objectives and then see what happens during those. You know, why did it happen this way? Oh, this was why, you know, maybe it's something I did, you know, or like you said, or maybe it's the information that we had now have from our dogs to know that, oh, yeah, this dog's got a strong memory and it proved itself again because lo and behold, I did something near a rock or I put something in this way or I, you know, had it set up in a bird launcher or whatever it was. And I realized through my, uh, that was the fifth time I've done that in the past, they'd say two weeks. So it's, it's very helpful and important for our data collection and for our training plans. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, our, you know, training in the, in the hound and the hunting world is our seasons dictate a lot of what we can do, but the stuff that you're telling us we can do in the off season. And I, you know, I've always mm -hmm. said that, you know, I do a lot of hound hands-on and foundation work for my hounds, um, during the off season. And then when season comes in and I'm actually able to, to, to hunt, you know, a lot of that stuff's worked out. Or like you said, I find out what I need to work on, um, ne you know, next off season. Like, do I, you know, do I need the, to trash break the dogs or do I need to work on, you know, loading the dogs, the mm -hmm. dogs like to ride up, you know? Yeah. So everything you're saying is, you know, there's, there's a place for it, what we do. Um, the second thing I wanted to ask you, you talked about it earlier, was selection. So mm -hmm. what tips, pointers, and I know we're we're still using dogs for nose work. Now, our dogs do need to, mm -hmm. you know, they got to have stamina. They've got to be able to cover ground and and stay with the, the, the game, and, and they end up either treeing it or baying it. What are some selection tips that you had? And I know Ariel give us, you know, some of her stuff that she uses. What are some what are some tips that you may be able to give us on selection so we don't have those dogs wash out as much? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I would probably guess, even for you guys not knowing your world as good as obviously I do in mine, but I would imagine environmental stability is going to be a very important aspect being uh, able to handle uh, you know, other animal scents that are in the environment that don't mm-hmm. freak it out. Uh, obviously being sure to shot depending on what you're doing when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, if, it's, if there's firearms involved, mm-hmm. um, being able to be collaborative at a level that is helpful for you, whatever that level is. Do I want a dog as, you know, like I said, in field trial work, I want some significant collaboration with me and the dog because it knows to follow my cues or my directionals. Um, maybe I want a dog who's far more independent that's going to be a hound that is out way out in front of me, uh, flushing or pursuing uh, a target. Mm-hmm. Um, and more importantly, I want a dog that can maintain its arousal levels. The dog that does not get overly stimulated with minimal amount of st- a stimulation cue, whatever that is, because Obviously, anything that's overly stimulated that just goes from zero to 100 pretty quick mm-hmm. is, is not going to be very mentally flexible. And in, in your environments are going to require a lot of quick mental changes. Mm-hmm. So various hounds need to make adjustments on the fly. If I got a dog who just loves to go get bay all the time and just while it's even searching and hunting, it's baying constantly, it may not be as proficient as a dog who can maintain focus work and then when it's time to bay at the appropriate hey i found it boom off we go so you know i I would be looking for a dog who can maintain the arousal levels you know know when to press on the gas pedal and when to step on the brake you know without an overabundance of information coming from me you know uh, obviously i think again i don't know your world as well but a, a dog that is just constantly worked up is gonna have to have constant management and the more management you're putting onto it inhibits what it should be doing because it's constantly trying to deal with your management style, whatever it is. Could be collar, could be lines, could be environment, whatever it is you're doing to keep this dog focused on the task at hand. Uh, again, I want a dog who can come to it naturally and do my little different tests that I do, but maintain its excitement and arousal levels where it doesn't throw it in a red line where now I've got to now manage that and try to control that and get it towards actually understanding what I want it to go do. Yeah. One of the things I picked up and I, I've, like I said, I've, I'm repeating stuff that I've already said through other podcasts, but I don't like my dog in red. I like my dog to have a calm yep. mind and, and that's exactly what you're saying. Um, and you know, for our trail dogs, the dogs that's got to take that odor and work it and work it and work it, you can't have the dog that works um, erratic and there's no method um, to mm-hmm. it. So what you're saying is is spot on. So talk to me about being persistent. Um, and I know that some of the guys listening to this are going to be like, no, I want that dog that, that'll stay after that bear for 20 hours. But mm-hmm. when you go, we talk our, we talk about slick train a lot. And when you said persistent, that's what that's what brought to my mind. The dog goes in and he makes a tree, and there's no game there. And the dog mm-hmm. that is persistent, a lot of times won't work that problem out because he's mm-hmm. he's sold on that object on that that yeah box they're or over whatever. aroused yeah yep. So the dog that's overly aroused or overly stimulated 
it looks good because we perceive that many times that that's really persistent and that, Mm -hmm. and there's truth to that. However, you know, for example, you know, from the Navy SEAL community, we don't want guys that are spun up and overly, let's say egotistical or overly driven. There's a, there's a, a frequent saying used in that community and that is calm breeds calm Mm -hmm. because when the shit's going crazy around you, I don't need somebody that goes batshit crazy with it. I need somebody that can manage their emotions, focus in on the task and do the job. Mm -hmm. I kind of want the same thing in my dog. If I'm going to, if I'm going to track something for an extended period of time, I don't want a dog that blows this wad right off the get right off at the gate. Mm -hmm. I want a dog that's like, okay, I got it. I'm running it. Okay. I've lost it. Okay. Where is it at? Okay, this whatever this is went up this tree, but it's no longer there. Where else can I go? And and as quick as it can, it adjusts and looks for another opportunity or another answer to what's in that environment. Mm -hmm. So, but if they're overly aroused, and again on a short test or something that's only a few minutes long in an evaluation, that can fool us as trainers and handlers and think, oh wow, that dog is really really motivated. Mm -hmm. It'll follow something really well. But then all of a sudden when we have to go out there for, let's just say an hour or two hours, and that's still short to some of these uh, hunts, that this dog is smoked in the first 30 minutes or it can't get out of its own way because it was convinced that the item is here or the, the prey item is there and it's no longer there anymore, but there's still scent there. It doesn't understand because it hasn't tried anything different that there could be another answer to solve that problem. And the old saying is, what's the definition of insanity? Repeating the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, right? Mm -hmm. So I want that dog who has that level of motivation but is clear-headed to go, okay, like I said, it knows how to moderate the gas pedal. It knows how to work itself up when it needs to, which is usually when they're, you know, about ready to catch the prey or, or signal that they found the prey. Mm-hmm. But I don't want the dog who's just so excited to find the prey. It just can't stop. And oh my gosh, oh my God. And it, it, it just stays going crazy. And then all of a sudden after about X amount of minutes, it has a hard time maintaining itself as opposed to the dogs that are more balanced. Again, in the operations community, I don't want the guy who's going crazy and trigger happy and want you're out. If that's the kind of, you know, personality you have, you will not last long in that community. You need to have stability, be able to focus when everything around you is going crazy or when the initial plans that we wanted to go by go to hell I need to be able to adjust fire pretty quickly and make these changes that get the job done. And I need a dog in many cases that can do a lot of those same things that can be at the right level of motivated, but knows how to pace it and, and solve the problem. It, the environment changed. Oh, now we're at a water crossing. What do I do? Oh, let's try to get around it. Let's go through it. You know, Versus the one that's just going to run like reckless abandonment and jump in the water and go across when all the animal that its prey did was go to the left or go to the right and avoided the water, you know, things like that. Yeah. So is there a test in particular that you do to gauge that? Is there something off the top of your head that you would think about? I mean, there's not necessarily a particular test. I just present their, you know, reward items and I do things 
uh, how I play, you know, because my environment's different at every place I go test a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just present that item. Sometimes I put it behind a barrier that it, it can see through the barrier, let's say a chain link fence or something like that. It's items on one side, the dog's on the other side. Um, you know, I'm looking for a dog that stays persistent, even if I walk away, if I go away from there, they stay there. They, they are still attended at, at it. Um, I don't necessarily want the dog who stays biting at the fence, biting and pulling, biting and pulling and doing whatever. I want the dog that may try to get over, may try to work its way. It's going to try different things. If I see it trying, like maybe digging, maybe going around, maybe lo and behold, six feet down to the left is actually an opening to the fence that they didn't know about. But because they tried different things, that's what I'm looking for. And, it, and, I'm, and I want them to do that despite me being there. I might be there initially, and then again, I'm walking away because I'm looking for them to stay after it despite my or where my presence is at. Um, there are some dogs that are going to go to you and say, hey, help, help me figure this out. And again, depending on that job, that it could be a great answer. Um, for some of the things that I do and I would imagine in the hunting community, I want a dog who tries to figure out how to maybe get around or through or whatever, but not keep trying the same thing over and over and over again. Right. Yep. And I, I mean, I've like, there's so many visuals I have with what you're saying, the dog's behavior and just sitting back, giving the dog a challenge. Cause that's basically what you're doing and seeing how the mm-hmm. dog takes that challenge and works it out. Yep. Yeah. Correct. And I don't like, I mean, that's I, the biggest thing. I do not like the spastic dog. I just do not. Um, it's more work. Yeah. You're I mean, putting more work in the areas that aren't what the job really is. Right. Yeah. Well, Cameron, how, um, is there anything that you'd like to add on the cognitive side of it? Anything that, you know, what your takeaway for us that, that we could take away from what you've told us? Yeah. I mean, I would share with everybody if you learn these cognitive tests and um, it's, you know, I do seminars on it. My, I actually have one of my employees that works with me. She was part of the original cognitive testing staff for these dogs at Duke university. Then she went to Auburn university and did more things there. Um, uh, but so now she works for me and I send her out on at times to share this, but the most important thing I want to share with everybody is if you actually go out and learn these tests and apply these tests, it doesn't matter what job you have because these tests are, are telling you, you know, multiple different ways, information about your dog that will make your training more efficient for you and your dog. So I just highly encourage people to seek out and go learn about cognition through, you know, Brian Hare's website. They can contact us at FordK9.com. They'll actually see when we're doing seminars on cognition. Ironically, I'm going to be in, North Carolina, I believe it's going to be in Henderson, North Carolina at Next Level Kennels in oh, about yeah. three weeks. I think it's the middle of uh, of July, June, or sorry, July, I believe 22nd, that oh, weekend, wow. whatever that is. Yeah. yeah, I'll be over there doing a cognition seminar there. So we, we go around and, and we share, uh, you know, these seminars for all types of people. Cognition does not matter what the dog's discipline is. It's important information for you to know how your dog problem solves its world. Is it memory or does it try things? And I think, like I said, the point I want to stress is the more you know this or you apply this information to your training, um, you're going to be way more efficient as a trainer. You're going to just understand your dog better. You're going to get into your dog's mind and kind of have the user manual to how that dog works. And that's super helpful no matter what we do. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's, 
it just knowing what, what people need to understand, just knowing what you should and shouldn't be doing or how you should do things makes a world of difference. It makes the, the training so much easier <laughs> and it saves time. Like what you said, it just saves time. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Henderson, the more you know your dog, the better you're going to be. That's so it's right. all about knowing your dog. And that's stuff that you can do. Like you can do that, you know, one evening when you're not, when it's rainy, bring a dog in your basement or your garage and do the, you know, do the test. And I, if I'm not mistaken, you, there's a YouTube video uh, when you were at um, Ridge, Ridgeline um, of the cognitive, yes. you use the yeah. cardboard and the three, the three sand buckets people. And I'll try to add that to the notes of, of the podcast, but I'll put a couple of links. I will yeah, we're going to actually, we're in the middle right now of filming all of this to be an online course. So probably in the next, I would say, 30 to 60 days on the Ford K9 website, there'll be a link to the K9 cognitive battery of tests with videos and instruction and the PDF files for how to set it up and the procedures for it. The hardest thing that I had for the longest time of, of sharing it you know, digitally was, you know, trying to problem solve or forecast all the human errors that are made. (laughs) So after a couple of years of doing this now, uh, you know, generally speaking, people, you know, give me the same typical errors. So now I can kind of share, Hey, make sure you don't do this. Mm -hmm. Or if you do this, here's your problem. solve. here's how you either start over again, or you continue on just, you know, understand that this score might look different on this repetition. So, but in any case, that stuff will be available online through the website. Uh, That's just my last name, F O R D K number nine.com. So for K nine.com will have that. Um, but you're right. There is some YouTube videos where I've shared some of the tests. So it's just part of them. The hard part again is I don't want to give somebody a little bit of a test and then they go, Oh, I got it. And then you're mm-hmm. only getting part of an answer. I'd rather um, you get all the answer. You want all the information and, and yep. get all the data, not just part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal. Well, I think you guys should probably go check that out. I know that, you know, I will, cause I want to learn and I want to, I want to do better and make the dogs better. So Cameron, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and, and sitting down with us today. And I hope the listeners get fr- get something from it. And like I said, I just can't tell you how appreciative we are that, you know, that you took the time to, to come on. And usually you're the host. I mean, <laughs> listen to your podcast, like <laughs> all kinds of them. So I, I really appreciate your time. And I hope the listeners, I hope the listeners do too. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm happy to do it. And like you said, hopefully we'll gain some listeners that want to know more about detection. Like you said, my, my podcast, Canines Talking Sense, we just try to share um, my goal on that podcast is to put listeners uh, in, in a position to hear from other experts from chemistry to biology to like we were talking about before the episode, uh, Craig Koshik, who comes from your guys' world, who's a a ton of knowledge. So I I shared to the uh, listeners of the detection dog world, why some of the breeds they have do what they do and where they came from. So yeah, I I love the fact that you guys have your podcast uh, and everybody's goal should be to be better as handlers and, and trainers of our dogs. Yep. And like I said, yeah, he he was a wealth a wealth of knowledge, and hopefully we can hook up with him and Bart and get one done ourselves. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, at the end of every podcast, we end it with Cameron. Thank you for helping us find a way to teach, train, and learn. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you, guys. 